<laughs> if we haven't met, my name is Tony. It's good to be, there, there you go, good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're new, visiting, checking us out. We're glad you're here. Um, if you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, uh, Miss Kaziah's over there. She's waving her hand. Go hang out with her. She would love to catch up. Looks like you guys are the kids who are not on spring break right now. It's good to have you here too. It's good to be with you guys. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we have been in Genesis. We're sort of working our way through the Old Testament. We're in Exodus right now. Now I want to start with an experiment. This is sort of a weird, awkward thing I'm going to ask you to do. So I don't know, tolerate me for a moment. All right. I want you to imagine Genesis has been written, and now you have a pen, and you're going to write Exodus. What do you start with? Do you do a summary? Like, this is what's going to happen, you know, a thesis statement. How do you write it? Now, this is the awkward part. I want you to turn to the person next to you and sort of guess, imagine, what is the first word of Genesis? You're like, that's a weird question. Yes, it is. So turn to the person next to you, and I just want you to guess. And if, you're, if you're, uh, someone is not next to you, make sure to include so there's no, like, islands to themselves somewhere in the, in the pew. So turn to someone, form a trinity or a couple, however you want to do it, and just guess. What is the first word in the book of Exodus? Just the first word. Think about it. Don't cheat and look on your, you know, okay, I'll call on you later. All right, switch if you hadn't, if you didn't guess, right, this is a quick answer. No sentences required. One word. All right, back up, back to me. All right, who has a good guess? Shout it out. So now I got a hand in the back. These, and if we were reading it in English, you'd be right. All right. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. But it wasn't written in English, was it? The first word is and. Who begins a book with the word and? You know who does? Someone who's writing a continuous story. Exodus was written to be connected to the book of Genesis. That's why it starts with the word and. Right? In bigger picture, one of the reasons we're actually in the Old Testament is to recognize that it's not just a collection of books that are sort of compiled together, but they are a continuous story that lead to Jesus that lead to Jesus and God coming to earth, dying on a cross, being resurrected, and one day coming back to make all things new. Right? That is a continuous story that starts in Genesis and continues in Exodus. This is why verses 1 through 6 in the book of Exodus focus on Jacob's family, which is the family of the promise, which is the family that is, whose story is outlined in the book of Genesis. And then when we get to verse 7, it's interesting. This is what the author writes. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, we just read Genesis. 
Does that language feel at all familiar to you? Where did you hear that? Shout it out if you remember. Say again? Okay. Right before Eden, in the creation account, Genesis 1.28, what does God say? He commands humankind, right, to what? Multiply greatly. Be fruitful. It also happens after the flood and Noah. He tells the people, right, hey guys, multiply greatly. Why is this important? Well, the author is signaling right, that this Exodus, this book of Exodus, is another kind of creation narrative. It isn't just the creation of the heavens and the earth, but the creation of a people, the nation of Israel. And just as happened in the book of Genesis, so here in Exodus, things begin to fall apart pretty quickly. Right, in chapter 3 of Genesis, right, Adam and Eve decide to go their own way, and so happens right, in the book of Exodus. In chapter 1, Pharaoh decides to do his own thing. Rather than allowing the people of God that God wants to multiply to do so, he wants to stop it. And this battle between Pharaoh's will and God's will sets the stage for the first half of Exodus. Pharaoh recognizes that the Hebrew people are multiplying so fast, he cannot control them. He doesn't like that. So he thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to force them to build cities. That'll distract them. Now they won't multiply as fast. But Pharaoh's attempt to limit their growth doesn't work. Actually, the more they are oppressed, the more they multiply. So next, Pharaoh decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to enslave them. And he tells the Hebrew midwives even, he says, hey, next time a Hebrew woman is going to give birth, make sure to kill the baby if it's a son. But the Hebrew midwives are like, we're not doing that. We fear God, not you. So they keep increasing in number. There's this sense as the narrative's unfolding that no matter what he, Pharaoh does, God's will is going to be accomplished. The people are going to keep multiplying. So then Pharaoh comes up with this new idea, and he tells everyone this in Exodus 1.22. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. The irony is, Pharaoh's very command to toss the Hebrew boys into the Nile leads to Moses being raised in Pharaoh's house. The text tells us that a man from the house of Levi and a Levite woman had a child named Moses. And with no option left, right, what's she supposed to do? She puts her baby boy into the Nile. And yet, even though Noah, or, uh, Moses' mom obeys Pharaoh's command, she does so in a way, and this is really important, that recalls the story of God's salvation, the story of Noah and the flood. The text says that she puts baby Moses into an ark and casts him into the water. There are only two times in the entire Old Testament that this word ark is used. The flood and with Moses. Both Noah and Moses avoid a tragic fate by being placed in an ark 
which carries them to safety. And through this experience, they both become vehicles through whom God creates a new people. Adding to the irony, not only does Pharaoh issue this command, which is thwarted and leads to the formative context of Moses' life, who will be the deliverer of Israel, but it's Pharaoh's very daughter who rescues the baby in the ark, right? Pharaoh can't even get the midwives to agree, he let alone his own daughter to obey his commands. Pharaoh's daughter has pity on the child, right? And then Moses' sister, who happens to be there and seizes on the moment, she says, oh, Pharaoh's daughter, we can help. I know someone who happens to be Moses' mom and her mom. I know someone who can help with the child. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And then Pharaoh's daughter agrees to this arrangement and even pays Moses' mother to nurse her own son. So much for Pharaoh's plan. He tries to stop the Hebrews and ends up paying for the Hebrew deliverer to be nursed. Despite Pharaoh's best efforts, God's plan won't be thwarted. So Moses ends up raised in a palace, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, a few weeks ago, our family, or maybe a month or two ago, our family watched Prince of Egypt. It was the first time I'd ever seen it, right? And there's these images of, like, Moses sand surfing, like, through Egypt, destroying all kinds of architecture. Let's just be clear, that's not what it was like. When you raise the son of a princess, you're groomed to lead. You're scrutinized. You're evaluated. Expectations are really, really high. And let's just be clear. There is no way to narrate Moses' childhood that isn't traumatic. He was born in a nation where being born a boy was literally a death sentence. He was then abandoned by his mother, though no fault of her own. He was then reunited with his birth family, only to be returned to his adopted family. He was then raised in an environment that was incredibly hostile to his family of origin. He was forced to live between two worlds, and yet was not fully at home in either place. I imagine as Moses grows up in the palace, he has a chip on his shoulder, always needing to prove, right, that he belongs. As both an outsider, right, among his people and the Egyptians, he must have wrestled with issues of identity. Who am I? Am I a Hebrew? Am I Egyptian? Both. Like, imagine trying to hide your true identity, trying to fit in, blend in. But you're in Pharaoh's palace, and expectations are high. Now, on one level, it's impossible to know what Moses' experience was really like. And yet on the other hand, we know that all humans, you, me, all of us, we develop coping mechanisms to adjust to whatever environment we're in. Right, the child of the stern and demanding parent learns to get attention through performance. The child of the punishing parent learns to blend in by being a good girl or a good boy. 
The young person who experiences profound loneliness, abandonment, and loss learns to stay busy in order to keep those feelings at bay so that they're not drowned by them. The child who was not sure about where her next meal would come from often develops a scarcity mentality, which leads her to hoard things to make sure she's okay in the future. The point is, we all adapt to whatever family or environmental context we're raised in. You did it. I did it. I was reading a book recently that said that 80% of marriage conflicts, the source, well, maybe a better way of saying it, the source of 80% of marriage conflicts, that event took place before the couple ever met. 80%. Has actually nothing to do with the person next to you. It has everything to do with what happened in your life before you met that person. Because we all develop coping mechanisms that affect our life. And the point is this, right? Moses also did this. He developed coping mechanisms. And while we can't know for sure, it seems like Moses' coping mechanism was to repress his anger. He kept it inside. Imagine what it would have felt like to be ethnically Hebrew raised in the upper echelons of Egyptian society, attending dinner parties where Egyptians mocked and belittled the Hebrew slaves, made jokes at their expense, Moses smiling, pretending like it doesn't hurt. I recently talked to a friend who's uh, biracial, has uh, both Caucasian and Persian blood. And he talks about how, as a biracial person, he can blend in in all kinds of environments. And he talks about occasionally when he'll go to gatherings and people will start talking about the Middle East and then they'll start talking about Middle Eastern people. And every so often someone will start saying things like, all Middle Eastern men are just fanatics. They should all just be wiped out. And he's sitting there thinking, what should I do? Do I just go off on this person for their ignorance? Or do I just stuff it? Do I leave the gathering and just cry in the car? How do you respond in a space where people don't necessarily know who you are, but you want to fit in? My guess is Moses knew that feeling. The wealthy Egyptians, they're all around him, right? They live and act and talk like the Hebrew slaves are beneath them, dehumanize them, mock them, make fun of them. And all the while, Moses is standing there, his anger building and building and building until it becomes rage. And then one day, Moses' anger, which has been building for a long time, gets the best of him. The text says in verse 11, chapter 2, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice the text says Moses goes out to his people. Moses knows he's not an Egyptian. He knows he's a Hebrew. He sees the burdens of his people. We don't know exactly what. Does he see their dilapidated houses? Does he see their struggle 
we do know that Moses sees one man doing probably what he does most days, beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses, right, who's bottled his anger, stuffed it, the mocking, the jokes, the callous comments at dinner parties, and his anger erupts. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Years and years of anger unleashed. And the Egyptian dies. And Moses realizes what he's done, and he tries to keep it a secret because that's what Moses has done his whole life. Keep secrets. He buries the man in the sand. Now, we don't exactly know what happens next, but likely he goes back to the palace. Goes back to the way he's always done life. Blend in, smile. We do know, though, this experience seems to do something in Moses because the very next day he goes out again to see his people. The text says he sees two Hebrews, and the text says they're struggling together. And Moses, he's like, oh, I'll play referee. He says to the man on the wrong, why do you strike your companion? I want you to go imagine this for a second. Moses feels internally like a Hebrew, but he's going out dressed in Egyptian regalia, not just sort of like humble regalia, but the garb of a prince. And now he's trying to play referee between two slaves. And they're like, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Now put yourself in Moses' shoes. You've worked your whole life to blend in, to be part of Pharaoh's household, and now your days of hiding are over. The word is out. Your rage, which has been building for years, has now outed you for who you really are. And the text says, Moses was afraid. My guess is he's afraid on lots of levels. He's afraid of the consequences of his behavior. Is he going to get punished? Is he going to get in trouble? Micah says he's also afraid because everything he has known has just been threatened. His friendships, his community, his adopted family, his daily rhythms are now all up in the air. For Moses, I imagine he experiences terror, he experiences the threat of this, and yet if we can step back, right, because we know the whole story, we can see that maybe this is actually the best thing that has happened to Moses since Pharaoh's daughter caught him in the ark as he floated in the Nile. Because now Moses can no longer hide. He can no longer ignore what has been present under the surface until that day. And what I think is really important for us to see is that what lies below the surface really matters. Whether I know it's there or don't is actually irrelevant. What is inside of us, given enough time, is bound to leak out, or in Moses' case, explode. 
Earlier I talked about how we all develop coping mechanisms, whatever context or environment we're in. For me, as I sort of thought about this story in light of my own development, I realized early on uh, that two emotions were permitted in life. Anger and a vague general sense of happiness. If you felt anything else, sad, lonely, hurt, you were supposed to stuff it and perform. Work hard, drive, push, achieve. Now, it's not like someone handed me a manual and said, Tony, this is how you do life. I learned like every one of you learned by watching, by being a part of a context, by being a part of a family and a community. And so when I was in college, these things started to leak out. They'd been leaking out all the time, but now I was actually trying to have a spiritual life. Now I was actually trying to follow Jesus. And what I realized is that I was incredibly judgmental of other people, especially people who surfaced any amount of weakness. I'd be like, get over yourself. Try harder. Why do you suck at this? Stop whining. And one day, this woman, (laughs) gosh, this woman named Sarah Reggio, I was on the second story of Boswell Dorm. She came up to me and she said, you know, Tony, I'd like to have a conversation with you. Just big picture, Tony, I I just want you to know that like, I see two emotions that you ever experience. You're either angry or you're vaguely happy. You know most people experience more emotions than that. (laughs) Most people actually feel like it's okay to feel other things, to be weak, to feel sad. Do you know that? And I looked at her and I said, thank you so much. Absolutely not. That's not what I did. That's not what I learned to do. What did I do? I won the argument. (laughs) Because that's what I did. Because when you mess with someone's defense mechanisms, it's like messing with their survival. And people will fight to keep them going. And with Moses, right, he's outed. And what is the first thing he does? He runs. He's used to hiding, so this is what he continues to do, right? But instead of hiding his identity in the palace, what does he do? He physically runs to a place called Midian. Now, this trip is likely between 300 and 400 miles. There should be a map. You can see... The green part is probably where he is, somewhere in that area. And then he went to, if you look to the far right and bottom, you see those three dots. Midian is somewhere along there. This is through wild desert terrain. If he goes fast, 10 days. If he goes a little slower, maybe he's at 15 or 20 days by himself through this terrain. I remember a couple years ago, I did a backpacking trip in Kings Canyon, It was like a a day and a half, but it was 35 miles, and it was like 
pretty far out there, just in a day. And I remember how alone I felt. I just spiritually, relationally, emotionally, it was like, wow, I have space to breathe. Imagine Moses going from palace life to 15 days in the wilderness by himself. Imagine thinking about how he's done life. Imagine thinking of where that got him, murdering an Egyptian man. Thinking about, what am I going to do with my life going forward? Everything I know has been lost. Obviously, we don't know exactly what happens to Moses on this trip. What we do know is the next time we see Moses, he's able to actually engage in a slightly healthier way. His strong sense of justice actually allows him to defend these shepherd girls in Midian. The text reads this. This is verses 16 and 17. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to feed or to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. So you have these shepherds coming in. They're basically running over these women that are trying to do their work. And Moses, he sees it. And what does it say? He stood up and he saved them. And he watered their flock. Two weeks before, Moses killed a man. But this time, Moses is actually helpful. He exercises his restraint and actually accomplishes some degree of justice. Seems like the walk to Midian actually helps Moses a bit. Right, the time alone, reflecting on his identity, and maybe even more just processing what has become of his life. Now, I'd love to say that, like, Moses gets there, and man, Moses is perfect now. But he's not. In verse 19, when Zipporah, who's one of the daughters that he rescues, brings Moses to introduce him to her father, she introduces him as an Egyptian. And Moses doesn't even bother to correct her. He's so accustomed to adapting himself to whatever situation he's in. He just keeps quiet and lets people believe what they want, just like in the palace. And yet again, right, this isn't the end of his journey. He will spend the next 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd, part of a family and a community and a tribe in Midian before God reveals himself in a burning bush and calls Moses back to his people. Now, it's tempting to think again that after those 40 years, Moses is perfect, but he's not. What we see is that Moses is on a refining journey, not in order to be perfected, but to be continually refined. When God meets Moses in the burning bush, which Aaron will talk about next week, I won't go into detail, the first question he asks is an identity question. Who am I? The identity questions he wrestled with earlier are still with him, even 40 years later. Even after 40 years, right? Moses isn't finished. And even after he returns to Egypt, God uses Moses to free the people. Moses' anger, again, resurfaces again in the wilderness. My point is this. Exodus 1 through 2 is the beginning of a long process of Moses' spiritual and character formation, which begins with a traumatized child who grows up into a confused man who in the desert in a community at Midian begins to become the person that God needs him to be. 
and who continues to develop through the rest of his life. Then the question becomes, right, as we think about this story in the context of the 21st century, in the context of Wellspring, in the context of your life and mine, I keep coming back to the conversation I had with Sarah Reggio. Right, how this awkward and unexpected conversation shifted things for me. Like I, I sort of think, how many years would I have continued to live out of the same broken patterns? How long would I have continued to embody the same defense mechanisms of my childhood and youth in my adulthood, in my singleness, in my marriage, in my parenting, and in my life? The truth is, like, that conversation, though I handled it terribly, was the starting place for me of an internal journey, a deeper journey with God. Like Moses, I was unexpectedly put into a place to deal with what was really going on below the surface. And I just want to say, like, as a pastor of this community, I want us to be the kind of people who, like Moses, are on a deeper journey of transformation that deals with our defense mechanisms and our coping strategies that deals with our issues of character and identity. And yet, I just want to be super honest because my experience, both personally and in Christian community, is that I think actually, as Christians, we are some of the most adept people at avoiding these very things. Let me give you two sort of tactics I have learned in church life that we use, I have used, and likely you have too at one time or another, to avoid this process. Tactic one goes something like this. Sort of, God has made me a new creation, hallelujah, the old is gone, the new is to come, I can just look forward. And there's truth to that, right? God has made us new creations but it ignores the relational process of God's restoration. God actually wants to work with us and walk with us in a relational way, especially as it relates to our identity and our character. He might heal your leg instantly. My guess is he will not do that for your character or identity. And there's a reason for this. God wants to walk with us through that process. He wants to unpack the ways that we have outsourced our identity to other people. He wants to unpack the broken character patterns and help us see why we're doing these things so that we, over time, can learn to trust Him. The second tactic I think we use is to focus on our external behaviors. I think it's really easy for us as Christians to become superficial tinkerers with our behavior. Adopt a sort of behavior checklist instead of an open heart to the probing conviction and transformation of the Holy Spirit, we offer God a checklist and say, am I doing enough? Enough. 
truth is, that's not what God wants. God wants our heart. God wants the deepest part of ourselves, and he wants to transform us from the inside out so that we are actually formed into Jesus' image from our core, not superficially looking like Jesus just on the outside. Moses spends 40 years in the desert and in a community at Midian being refined, not perfected. And I guess this question, my, this question I have this morning is, are we spending our time dealing with what is most important? Are we facing our issues of character? Are we dealing with our identity issues and how we outsource our identity to all kinds of people and things rather than looking to Jesus and saying, who am I? Right? Are we becoming the kind of people God desires us to be so that we can be the people that God uses in the world? And we see this with Moses. Right? This is why the ark made it to the palace. Right? God is forming a people after his own heart. Right? Moses is a part of that story. Right? His formation, his character, his identity are intimately connected to the formation of the people of Israel. And likewise, God is forming a people after his own heart here. Every single one of us has something to bring to this place. I guess my question is, are we allowing God to shape us and form us at core levels? Or are we just checking the right boxes superficially tinkering with our behaviors, but not really changing. Because the thing is, what I do with my heart and my character and identity impacts you. Right? Think of my college fellowship experience. I was rocking it with Jesus. I was just judging and angry at everyone else. Now, my assumption this morning is that Literally, none of us come into this room thinking, you know what I want to do today? I want to superficially tinker with my behaviors. Sign me up. None of us think that coming in today. I think all of us, on some level, long to be transformed at the deepest level of our being into Jesus' image. But we're not always sure how to get there. I mean, who came in, who said to Jesus when they first started following him, you know what I want? I want a really superficial obedience that doesn't change my life and keeps me the same forevermore. Hallelujah. No one does. So what, what does it then look like? How do we know if we're on the right track? How do we make sure in the complexity of life we're not missing what is most important? I think there are three things that I have learned that I want to pass on to you. Um, and you know, you can... Kick them to the curb if you like. These are three things I've learned. There are also three things I would say that every deep apprentice of Jesus that I know, that I admire, does. I literally do not know one person that I deeply admire that doesn't have these three things. So they might not be the people you admire. They're the people I admire. The first is this. They have really honest friendships. Not just people they hang out with, those are great too, but really honest friends, people that actually know them. Let's get real for a second. So answer me this. 
Can you identify two to three people in your life right now who know what you are currently struggling with? Not what you struggled with a year ago, not that part of your story that you have packaged with a bow, the part you are struggling with right now that feels vulnerable and out of control. Are there two to three people in your life that know that and are praying for you? If you can't answer that, saying yes, I would say you have to start here. I have literally never met someone who had a deep and profound connection to Jesus that did not have a few friends that they could lean on through tough stuff. And the truth is, if we all go, if we go deep enough, there's always tough stuff. There's always battles in our spiritual life. Do you have two to three people? If you don't, start there. Second, every really growing Jesus apprentice I know that I really admire takes time for solitude. What this is, is just time with God alone. I think this is actually really key to Moses' formation. Yes, I think Moses develops friendships, right? In Midian, God doesn't send him to sit on a rock for 40 years, right? He's a part of a community. He's a part of a tribe. He's a part of a family. But he also is a shepherd. He takes time every day alone with sheep out in wild places. My experience personally is that in order to grow in a deep way, we need regular patterns of detaching from the busy, the crazy, the obligations, and recentering in the person of Jesus. My experience is this requires at least a few hours every week, but those hours can be chunked differently. Some people do an hour every morning, and they're just like, that is what I need. My personal experience is a little different. My personal experience is uh, my daily times very significantly. But for the last, I don't know, 15 years, I have a chunk of time, a pretty sizable chunk of time every week that I rely on to detach from all the crazy and recenter in Jesus. And that's been true. When I was single, it was an entire day once a week. I'd turn off my phone and I was gone. Away from you and with Jesus. When I got married, it was all the morning until dinner. And then my wife and I, Jeannie, would do dinner together. It's a little shorter. When we had kids, then it became, all right, you get the morning, I get the afternoon, we'll get four to five hours, and then we'll all meet up as a family. Regardless of the season, almost every single week for the last 15 years, right? Somewhere between nine and four hours every single week. The reason I say this, one, to offer some sense of like what that looks for me, but I've also found that in the busyness of our culture, most people, if they don't actually have regular rhythms of detaching, it takes them at least 90 minutes to even get to the place where they can slow down and even know what's going on. 
So if you take, you know, 10 to 15 minutes in the morning, that's great. I'm just going to say, if you want to go deeper with Jesus, you need space. How you work that out, there's a lot of flexibility in the how. But my question is to you, do you have sufficient space to detach and recenter yourself in Jesus? If you don't, my experience, what I've seen is the transformative work that God does will likely be pretty superficial. You will find yourself trapped in the same core struggles over time with little change. The third one is this. Honest friendships, solitude. Every person that I deeply admire that has a deep spiritual life knows on some deep level that the journey is long and slow. That identity and character cannot be microwaved. Right? In a culture of immediacy, identity and character take time. They are formed in the presence of a kind and generous God. And the key in the end is that God, in His kindness, is working with us. His presence and His kindness are with us, even when we feel lost and helpless and incapable. Just as God doesn't let Pharaoh's opposition stop His formation of His people, Israel, so when we give ourselves into the presence of God at these deeper levels and we trust Him, God will never let us go. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is sure that these Philippians who have given themselves over to Jesus will not be forsaken as they let go into his gracious and merciful hands. And I guess my question to you today, right, the third part of this is do you believe that if you let go and allow God to work in you, that God will be faithful, that he will be kind, that he won't let go of you, even when it feels vulnerable and hard. The truth is we all, like Moses, are living a story. We all are formed in a broken world, and we are also invited into a deeper journey with God. I want to invite the worship team back up. We're just going to take a second just to turn back to God. Right? Sunday morning is a small way that we detach and we recenter. Let's take this moment in worship to recenter in God. I also think this is a moment where we can say, God, I am broken. Do you accept me? We can take the things that we have carried and allow God to have space to speak into our story and our assumptions about what life is like. God, we invite you in this space to speak to us. God, we invite you to convict us and challenge us and woo us and remind us, God, that you are trustworthy and kind. 
God, speak. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We want to follow you. We want to know you. But God, we are broken and blind creatures. And we need your grace. And we need your mercy. And we need your guidance. Guide us as you did Moses. Guide us as you have done to millions and millions of people throughout history. God, may we know you and love you with all of who we are. Come, Lord Jesus.